0: Dwayne Elmer, who's a professor of international studies at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, wrote these words. He said, The destruction of unity is the destruction of something that God has made holy. Any activity contributing to disunity also contributes to the veiling of God's glory. I suspect that if the Apostle Paul would have read Elmer's words, he would have added his amen to that. For you see, the primary problem that he was dealing with in Corinth, and about which he wrote in the first letter, or what we call 1 Corinthians, was not so much a lax attitude toward sexual immorality in the church or lawsuits among the members or even the abuses of the Lord's table, as bad as they were. Those were bad enough. But the root cause of all the problems in Corinth was pride and selfishness which was leading to disunity in that church. Even in the chapters that we're currently studying, chapters 12 through 14, the primary problem is not so much the abuse of spiritual gifts, although that's a problem. Certainly it's a problem. But the abuses were symptoms of the primary problem. They were symptoms of the disease and the disease was pride and selfishness which had resulted and manifested in this unity, that's going to be made crystal clear when we get to Chapter 13. People wonder, why in the world is Chapter 13 where it is? It's right in the middle of a discussion about tongues and healings and prophecy and all that. Why throw the whole love thing in the middle of those chapters, which is talking about abusive spiritual gifts? In fact, chapter 13 is going to be the answer for all the problems that they have. It's going to be the answer for the, sexual, the lax attitude towards, towards sexual immorality, the lawsuits, the abuses of the Lord's table, the abuses of the spiritual gifts, because the disease was selfishness and pride which resulted in disunity. Everything else was a symptom. Now, it doesn't mean symptoms aren't significant. I don't want you to get me wrong. If I have a headache, it's my custom to take a couple of Advil. I'm just a coward when it comes to pain. If there's a painkiller around and I can numb the pain, I'm going to numb it. But if I have a headache for 21 days in a row, which I had some years ago, then I'm going to start to think, and maybe this doesn't just need to be numbed with Advil. Maybe somebody that knows what they're doing needs to take a look at me and see if they can figure out what is actually causing the headaches. It would be kind of silly to go to a physician and say, listen, I've had these headaches for a long time. They examine you and say, well, what's wrong with me, Doc? Well, you know what? I think you're having headaches. But that's what happens sometimes. I had a friend who went to the doctor recently with dizziness. The doctor diagnosed it as vertigo. That's just a doctor's word for dizziness. I want to know what the root cause is. I already knew it was vertigo. The person already knew vertigo. Come on. You see, symptoms like vertigo and headaches, symptoms by definition are a reflection of something else, usually something deeper. The Corinthian problem is, again, like I say, all these things that we talked about up until now, They were symptoms of a greater problem. And while Paul does give answers to the individual symptoms, he's talked to him about the lawsuits and the lax attitude toward immorality and all these other things. Who baptized who? He talked to him about that. He gets to the heart of the problem and to the answer for all these symptoms in chapter 13. And the answer is not going to be to take an aspirin and kill the pain. The answer is going to be to go deeper than that and get rid of the pride and the selfishness, which has resulted in disunity. Because the opposite of pride and selfishness is love. And he's going to tell them, and he's going to tell us too, that you can't be prideful and selfish and loving at the same time. It just doesn't work that way. It can't be done. A church can have thousands upon thousands of members and a cathedral on a hill. But if it's not a church that lives love... It's not going to be a church that's effective in fulfilling the great commission that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 28. It's not going to be a church that glorifies God. Allow me, if you will, to read verses 12 to 27 of chapter 12, understanding that our focus today is actually going to be on two of these verses, but I'm going to read the whole paragraph so that we have context for what we'll study today. Paul says in chapter 12, verse 12, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members... And all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by means of one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as He desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and on our unseemly members come to have more abundant seemliness, whereas our seemly members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. That there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body, and individually members of it. In God's plan for the church, every single believer is important. Every single believer. Everyone plays a role. There should be no dichotomy in the body of Christ or even in a local church between those who participate and those who spectate. We're all participants in the plan of God in this dispensation. I love this divinely inspired illustration, the, the, the way that Paul takes the human body and uses that as a metaphor for the body of Christ. All parts of the human body are important. And all parts of the human body need to be functioning in a healthy way for an individual to be considered healthy. I remember 30 plus years ago when I was in my anatomy and physiology classes and uh, doing my biology work. I remember they used to talk about, and I'm sure they still do, rudimentary organs. Organs that are left over from some ancient evolutionary process that we don't really need anymore, but yet they're still there because they just haven't gone away yet. They used to talk about the appendix as a rudimentary organ, and now they, now they understand it's actually part of your immune system. They used to talk about the thymus being a rudimentary organ, and now medical science knows that the thymus has great functions, actually also with the immune system. There are no unnecessary parts. If there were, God wouldn't have put them there. He's all for redundancy, but he doesn't put any unnecessary parts in the body. We need them all. Now, we may not be able to figure them out at that particular time. The information about the thymus was figured out in in the Vietnam War by doing autopsies on the men who had been killed at a very young age suddenly. So they may not have known that prior to Vietnam, but they know it now. There's some things that we may not understand about the human body Now, but we will later. But all parts of the human body need to be functioning in an efficient way for the body, for the organism to be efficient. If a person has a healthy heart but a diseased liver, would you really call that person healthy? I I don't want that. If I had a healthy heart but a diseased liver, I would consider myself in need of help. If a person has a healthy heart and liver but they've got cancer of the lungs, they probably wouldn't consider themselves at that moment healthy. All systems have to be functioning well for the entire organism to experience its full potential as an organism. Now, I know that we can still experience life. Many of you today are suffering ailments as you sit here. And that doesn't mean that it prevented you from coming or coming from listening or worshiping God, but I'm talking about experiencing the full potential that the human body is designed to have For that to happen, we all need all systems functioning up to their full potential. All parts need to work for the whole to work. And if that's true with the body, the human body, Paul's going to say it's so much more true with the body of Christ. There are no celebrities in the body of Christ. The only celebrity is Christ himself. Paul made it very clear in these verses that we'll cover next week. That all parts of the body are important, even those that seem to where maybe they're not quite so honorable in our view. Everybody has a role. There should be no spectators in the body of Christ or people who are only spectators. We should all have a role in the body. We all have a role. We should all function within that role. And then in verse 12, Paul draws this parallel between the human body and the church. The human body is made up of many different parts. So is the church. But the focus in this verse and throughout the rest of the chapter, in fact the whole of the New Testament, and the whole Bible is on Jesus Christ Himself. That's where the focus needs to be. That's why He ends with that. He says, for even as the body, He's talking about the physical body there, is one and yet has many members, and all are members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ." He's going to use that word Soma in a couple different ways. Here he's using it as the physical body. Later on he's going to talk about a metaphorical body, the, the church. Now there's a difference between the local church and the body of Christ. There's the capital C church and the little c church. By definition, everybody in the capital C church has trusted Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life, by definition. Now I would hope that everybody in the local church has done it, but sometimes We find out sometimes after the fact even that that may not necessarily be true. But by definition, everybody in the body of Christ, which is synonymous with the capital C church, everybody is a believer. So the focus is squarely upon Jesus Christ. And as we mentioned a moment ago, Jesus Christ himself is the unifying factor in Christianity. How it would grieve him. Picture this for a moment. Picture how much it must how much it must grieve Jesus Christ to look down upon or to look across because he's here with us now. He's on the present, he's in us, and he's also here with us. If he sees his children fussing and fighting over mundane things. Now, if it's over major areas of theology, I think he's up there praying uh, alongside the Father, making intercession that they'd get it right. But it must grieve him like it grieves the Holy Spirit when the members of his body are at odds with one another over trivial things. And frankly, that's what it is most of the time, trivia. When when it's all boiled down, it's not significant. It reminds me of the couple who pledged fidelity to each other. And they promised to love each other and cherish each other. And then eight years later, they get divorced because one of them won't put the lid back up on the toothpaste. (laughs) Actually, actually, it was in a divorce decree. You know, and God looks at us and says, you know, they started really good. Oh, didn't they love each other? But they split up over the most trivial things. Paul's going to say it's not right. Jesus is the unifying factor. All these things you're complaining about, Corinthians. All these things you're fussing about, Corinthians. It's selfishness. Focus upon Christ. He is what, or more specifically who, we all have in common. We have great differences in this church. We have great commonalities. But the thing we all share in common is Jesus Christ. He's the reason for our unity. And make make no mistake, a lack of unity is not pleasing to Jesus Christ. So he then moves on from the principle to the procedure in verse 13, which is arguably one of the most theological of all the verses in 1 Corinthians. And so here the analysis that I'll give you this morning needs to be a little bit more detailed. So hang in there with me. We don't actually have a lot of time to do this today, just about 10 to 12 minutes. But hang in there with me. This analysis will be a little, a little grammatical. But don't let your eyes glaze over. It's important. And verse 13 reads this way, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Now this verse is huge in discussions on the Holy Spirit and His ministry in the church today. Huge. But a proper analysis of it, And I think it will help us very much to be able to make some sense of some of the controversies in the larger, broader context of the body of Christ today. The verse actually begins with a dative of means. I'll translate that for you. For by means of one spirit. For by means of one spirit. The spirit is the agent. He's the one that's going to do this baptism. The agent that draws us all together is the Holy Spirit himself. While we are united with Christ, it's the Spirit that takes us and does the uniting. That's what we get from the dative of means. By means of the Holy Spirit, then we were brought into the body of Christ. Literally, the phrase reads, the next phrase reads, we were all into one body baptized. There are a couple of critical things that need to be noted about that phrase because that is huge. This will help solve. So many things, so many discussions within Christianity, just a proper understanding of this. Several years ago, I was in India, and the conference had right at 1,000 pastors. It was in a huge auditorium. I was told before we got there that approximately two-thirds of the pastors would be Pentecostal in their theology. Now, when that's your audience and your topic is pneumatology, which is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, you know that you're going to raise some eyebrows no matter what view you take, And that you may have some controversies no matter what view you take. I prayed and prayed and prayed for months about it. Particularly the lecture that I gave on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. Because I knew that two-thirds would not necessarily agree with my viewpoint. So I came to have a comfort in how to approach this material. I think the last thing that we need to do is to approach our brothers and sisters who are Pentecostal in their theology. I think the, the last thing that we need to do is approach them with a sledgehammer and tell them you're stupid. And what you're doing is evil. I don't think that's the proper approach. Because if somebody comes up to me and tells me this view that I have on eternal security is stupid and that I'm evil, it doesn't make for a good further conversation. It usually is a conversation end or not a conversation starter. So what I did in this conference, as I, actually I had several lectures leading up to it, But I went to this verse right here, and I spent the entirety of the hour that I had in that particular section on this verse, and I walked them through the exegesis of the verse, which, as far as I could tell, none of them had ever considered. But when you walk through what the Word of God actually says in a loving, kind manner, and isn't that what we're supposed to do? Didn't Paul say that we're supposed to speak the truth in love? And when these people had this truth spoken to them in love... And I told them, as I'm going to tell you in a minute, that the, that the normal and necessary sign for the baptism of the Holy Spirit was never speaking in tongues, never, in the first century or now. Even though I told them that and I walked them through this exegesis, when it was over, they gave a rousing applause, all thousand of them. That was not done for any other session. They don't do that, not for any other session. My interpreter who turned to me, who is a minister in a Pentecostal church, I've spoken to this church twice now that I've been over there, welcomed me with open arms. The minister turned to me and said, You know, I had never thought of that before. Matter of fact, I never even considered that verse before. Thank you so much for showing it to me. You see, it's amazing what can happen to our theology if we'll just read the Word and read it carefully. Now, it's going to help to understand the underlying Greek here. I'm going to show you one Greek term that's, that's very important, or one Greek verb, and... We'll talk about it. It's very, very important for understanding, to unlocking it all. But even in English we could get it, for by means of one spirit we were all baptized. I want you to notice some things here. Notice the word all. When we do Bible study, let's do it carefully. Don't just read it so fast that we miss these things. We were all baptized. I want you to remember that Paul is writing to what is arguably the most carnal bunch in the ancient world. At least it's the most carnal bunch that we know anything about. And he says that we were all baptized. Now, this, is, this might be painful for some, but it shouldn't be. <laughs> I want you to think back to your high school grammar class. This is, it's going to be really easy. We can either say, I will go to the store, which is something that's going to happen in the future, right? I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to do it in the future. If my wife calls me up and says, what are you doing? And I say, I'm going to the store. That's present tense, right? Right? But if she calls me up and I've already been to the store and, and she says, What you doing? I said, Well, I, I went to the store. That's past tense. You know, past, present, future. I mean, I know we hated it. I hated it in school until I got to seminary. Then it became really important to me. But, but past, present, future. If you look at this verse, even in English, now I'm going to tell you the verb is in the aorist passive. The aorist tense in the Greek language is, is typically a past tense event. For by means of one spirit we were baptized is that something that's going to happen in the future? Is it something that's happening right now, or is it something that's already happened? Of course, it's already happened. That's the aorist passive. It's a past tense event. So, Paul is speaking, watch this, to a bunch of really carnal people, isn't he? I mean, you almost, and there's some, some Christians are probably wondering about the, the Corinthian salvation at this point, all the things that they were doing. Now we know they're believers. He calls them brothers and sisters. They're, they're part of the body of Christ. He lets them know that. But he says we were all baptized by means of one spirit. It's already it's something that has already happened in the past. If you ever stop and let that think in theologically, it settles a lot of issues. It settles some of the Wesleyan issues, early Methodism. It settles some of the issues even today. Even though they were extremely carnal, every single person... And the Corinthian church had already been baptized with this particular kind of baptism. Now this is not water baptism. This has nothing to do with going to a baptistry and proclaiming your faith in Jesus Christ in a public way. This is not it. There's no water involved here. The whole thing about the past tense is no small point given the distortions that have taken place over the centuries with respect to this doctrine. Some have proposed that there are believers, and I mean genuine believers who have not yet experienced the baptizing ministry of the Holy Spirit. The teaching of a second blessing is what it was called in the first part of the 20th century. At some point after the point of salvation, really didn't originate in the first part of the 20th century. But it was certainly popularized by a movement that began around the year 1900 that we now call the Pentecostal movement. That's why so many responded in the first Two decades of the 20th century with material about it. Lewis Bray Chaffers' book, *The Founder of Dallas Seminary: He That Is Spiritual*, was written in 1918 as a response to this brand new Pentecostal movement. 18 years is not very long. I mean, 18 years ago was what, 1990 something, 94, somewhere. There. Thanks for all the help. I appreciate that. <laughs> you Just hung me out to dry, and I never should do something that's not in my notes. But it wasn't that long ago. Let's put it that way. And by 1918, Chafer and many other people felt it necessary to write. And that's one of the things that Chafer writes about. If you read He that is spiritual, and many of you have, if you've been to Dallas Seminary, you've read it, or will. If you've read that, you see he spends a lot of time talking about this second blessing thing in this aorist tense and the whole idea of of a past tense baptism. That's why. Because he even knew at the beginning it was going to settle it. We're going to discuss the particulars of Pentecostal, charismatic movement, all that, in love, in a future lesson. But what's essential that we note now is that all have been baptized. Everybody that Paul is writing to in Corinth, and by extension, everybody that reads this as a believer has already been baptized. Now, if that's the case, there's only one point in time that a Christian's baptizing, having been baptized by means of the Holy Spirit can occur. And that's at the point that we've exercised faith. That's the only thing we all have in common. That's the only time it can occur if every single believer, every member of the body of Christ, has already been baptized. Which would not allow for, say, a person to be saved, and then go five to eight years, and then all of a sudden experience some baptism of the Holy Spirit. A lot of times people think speaking in tongues is the normal necessary sign for that. We'll talk about that too later. It doesn't allow the text doesn't allow for it. Listen, my friends, you don't have to beat anybody over the head with this. All you got to do is just lovingly sit down and point it out to them, and then let the Word of God and the Holy Spirit do the beat, do the beating. If anybody needs to be beaten, and they probably don't. They don't need to be beaten. They need to be informed, and they need to be lovingly informed. Otherwise, you're going to lose them and you have failed at your goal. The verb baptized, again, is eris passive. Signifying the action has taken place in the past. But that the action, the passive part, means that it is performed upon the individual by someone else. We don't baptize ourselves. We have been baptized. The Holy Spirit does this for us. The Greek term baptizo has been translated into English. That's where we get the word baptized from. All they did was just take the same Greek letters and essentially make them into an English word. It is understood to mean in certain contexts to dip or to immerse. But in this context, there's no water in view. Obviously, there's no water in view. It should be understood by its more basic meaning to identify. Baptizo means to identify one thing with another. The Spirit baptizes us or identifies us with Jesus and with the rest of the Christian community or the body of Christ, to use Paul's terminology here. Some theologians put it this way, the Holy Spirit takes the believer in this baptism, the Holy Spirit takes the believer and places them into union with Christ. And the final phrase that we'll discuss today, into one body, indicates the sphere of our common identity. So consider these things for a moment. If all in Corinth had already been baptized into the body of Christ by the time that Paul wrote this, could it be that a walk in holiness is necessary before one could be baptized by the Holy Spirit? I think not, because you might have been hard-pressed to find anybody in Corinth that was walking in holiness. Again, to assert that that's a carnal bunch is an understatement. So this being the case, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and this is our biggest theological point today, The baptism of the Holy Spirit must take place at the moment one places their faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way that it can be universally applied. Because we have people that are carnal, people that are spiritual in their walk. It can't even be a subsequent event that happens moments or years later, as all had been baptized. Past tense verb, it's an aorist passive. Not all will be baptized. Not all are being baptized, but all have been baptized, past tense. The baptism of the Holy Spirit cannot be triggered by a holy lifestyle, for not all in Corinth were holy, at least walking in fellowship with God. They were positionally holy. It's a popular teaching today, and I'll mention this as we close, that speaking in tongues was and still is the confirming sign that one has been baptized by means of the Holy Spirit. It is true that in the book of Acts there are three instances. Chapter 2, chapter 10, and chapter 19. Three instances of speaking in tongues. Those are the only three instances in the book of Acts, by the way. All three instances are associated with the advent of the Holy Spirit and this baptizing ministry. Again, there's a lot to that. We'll have to talk about that later. But those are recognized as special situations. In every one of those situations, it was a beginning. Outside of that, Outside of our passage here in twelve through fourteen of First Corinthians, it's not mentioned hardly at all in the New Testament. Speaking in tongues was never the normal and necessary indication that one had been baptized by means of the Holy Spirit. By the way, that lines right straight out of our doctoral statement. Speaking of Doc Dallas Seminary's doctoral statement, too. Speaking in tongues was never the normal and necessary indication that one had been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Because in Corinth, all had been baptized by the Holy Spirit, but not all had spoken in tongues. Paul makes that clear when we get to verse 30. All hadn't spoken in tongues, but all had been baptized. So it was never the normal and necessary sign. Both those words are important. When you get to doctoral statements of seminaries or churches, every word is important. Normal and necessary. It never was. So it's amazing how much controversy can be cleared up by careful reading of the Scripture. Let me just leave you with these three things. The Spirit's baptizing ministry is unique to this dispensation, to the church age. It first occurred on the day of Pentecost. And its purpose is to take the believer and place them into union with Christ. And as a result, union with fellow believers. That's part of the body metaphor. We've been identified into one body. The second thing, it's experienced by all believers in this dispensation. There are no out-of-the-body believers. You know, you talk about an out-of-the-body experience. There are no believers in Jesus Christ that are not part of the body of Christ. That's what I mean by there are no out-of-the-body believers. One is either a believer and in the body of Christ, or an unbeliever and out of the body of Christ. Nobody is a believer and out no unbeliever is in. And finally, it occurs at the moment of salvation and happens once. It's not repeated thereafter. But back to the central thrust of the passage as we close. Since we're all part of the same body, and since we're all in union with Christ, since we're all placed there by one and the same spirit, what sense does it make For members of the body of Christ to function with pride and selfishness leading to disunity. None at all.